Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Las Musas podcast. I'm Rebecca Balcarcel, author of The Other Half of Happy. Today, I'm joined by Lakin Zaya Kemp and Anika Fajardo. And today, on this episode of Sophomore Social, we'll be talking about the sophomore slump. Lakin, can you start us off by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your book? Yeah, my name is Lincoln Zay Kemp, and I live in Austin, Texas. And my newest young adult novel is the companion novel to my debut, Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet, which was recently named a Bell Play Honor Book. And Heartbreak Symphony is another dual POV romance that follows Aaron and Mia, who are both reeling from the tragic loss of a parent, both aspiring musicians who are terrified of chasing after their dreams. And there's also a slight element of magical realism in that Aaron's grief manifests itself as a giant robot that is the stage persona of his favorite musician. So I just wanted to mention that so nobody's surprised that it's not just a straight up contemporary novel. There is a slight twist and that book comes out on April 5th. Anika, tell us a little bit about your book. My name is Anika Fajardo and I am the author of What If a Fish was my debut middle grade novel. Um, I'm also the author of a um, adult memoir called Magical Realism for Nonbelievers, a memoir of finding family. And I recently wrote the Disney tie-in novel for Encanto, um, A Tale of Three Sisters. But my next book, uh, my sophomore middle grade is called Meet Me Halfway. And it is about new classmates, Maddie and Mercedes, who meet and realize they look awfully alike and that they have the same Colombian dads. And so the two team up in a parent trap inspired misadventure to try to find him and meet him for the first time. And it, it's just got pushed out. It um, is going to come out in September of 22. And I must say, I've read this one and I really recommend it. <laughs> it's, it's excellent. Thanks, Rebecca. Um, <laughs> well, my sophomore book um, is also middle grade. It's called Shine On Luz Velis. And it stars an 11-year-old bicultural girl named Luz. And Luz was a soccer star, but an injury has put her on the bench. When she stumbles onto the robotics class at school and starts learning computer programming from like this neighbor who's a grandfatherly figure, she thinks, okay, yay, I'm on my way to a new identity. And she really wants to make her parents proud again and you know, cheer for her like they used to on the soccer field. So she's trying to you know, get a new, a new thing that she can shine at. But then her Guatemalan father reveals a 13-year-old secret <clears throat> that will change everything, um, especially her assumptions about this idea that she has to do something important to be worthy of love. So that's Shine On Luz Velis and it it's not related to my first book, um, The Other Half of Happy. It's another standalone. Okay, well, let's jump into our questions. Um, the first one is, did you experience the sophomore slump? And if so, how did you overcome it? Or if not, how did you avoid it? So 100% I did, but not necessarily for typical reasons. I think lots of people struggle with their second book because there's this pressure to make it just as good or better than their first book. You know, that imposter syndrome comes in and you just want to prove to yourself and everyone else that your first book wasn't a fluke. But those weren't really the things that I struggled with. I mostly struggled with the content of the book, which was really heavy. 
as well as the fact that I was drafting it during the height of the pandemic in the summer of 2020. And I've, I've told the story many times, but basically I pitched an entirely different book to my publisher for book two, but they didn't feel like it was the right follow-up to my debut. And it actually took a while for them to come back to me with that response. My editor had approved the manuscript, her managing editor had approved, but when it got to the publisher, she said no. So suddenly I was back at square one and I was running out of time, you know, if I wanted to meet my production deadlines. And so I sent Heartbreak Symphony to my editor really out of desperation because it was the only partial manuscript that I had. And I just didn't have time to start something from scratch. And so this story that I really loved, but that I really did not want to tackle in the midst of such difficult circumstances ended up becoming my sophomore novel. And then from there, it was just a struggle to finish. I did not find like anything that really helped. I just had to kind of force my way through it. Um, like I said, I was on a time crunch. The content was very personal to me and really difficult to write about. And so I slogged my way through that entire manuscript, including the revisions. And it was definitely the most difficult book I've ever written to date. I mean, like Lakin, like any trying to create anything during the pandemic, I think was really hard. And the pandemic has it definitely impacted my first book. It, that one also got pushed back a few months. It came out in, in August of 2020. Um, by the time it came out, I actually was already working on uh, Meet Me Halfway, which really helped because I, you know, you kind of have this downtime as you're waiting for the book to come out. And, and even, even after it comes out, there's sort of this, I feel like it's kind of this waiting period. Um, you think like, oh, your first book is going to come out and there's going to be just like parties every single day. And there isn't, especially when it's a pandemic. <laughs> um, so it's good to have something that, you know, fill your time with and your brain with. And because although the two books are totally different, What If a Fish is about um, half brothers that are 10 years apart and Meet Me Halfway is about half sisters who are the same age. They're just a few months apart. Um, and so I have that experience of having a half brother who is about the same age as me. And so this is like endlessly fascinating to me. So these, like this question had been rattling around in my head. And so trying to figure out like, which direction did I want to go with it? Um, so I, like, it was, it was almost like after What If a Fish, I still had that pebble in my shoe that I was still experimenting with. And so I didn't have that feeling about like, oh, I have to make this better. I knew it was going to be a completely different book. Um, I knew I wanted to deal with much lighter topics, um, like like Lakin. My first book was all about grief, and I just didn't want to go there. I wanted to do something fun. Um, now, as I'm thinking about my third middle grade, that's where the feelings of sophomore slump are coming in. Um, I feel like a lot of pressure, <laughs> um, a lot of pressure to just even just produce, which is it's kind of a strange feeling because before it just felt like, like as you're getting started, you just are like, I'm just writing, I'm writing, I'm writing. And I just, if only I could get published. And then you kind of have this different feeling, which is I uh, need, I like must produce. And there's this pressure that's different than like, I need to write. So they're kind of these two different feelings. So I don't know if that's what most people experience with the sophomore slump, but that is definitely what I'm feeling with book number three. Yes. How about you, Rebecca? <laughs> I am feeling very similarly um, about book three. And also I had a slump with, with book two. Um, I didn't happen to have any finished books, you know, waiting on my hard drive when my debut novel sold. Like some people have been writing a while before they 
have a, the first debut come out, but I had only written one novel and that was it. And so I was starting from scratch and I really didn't have, like you're saying you had a theme that was still interesting to you and that you were gonna like go further and like look at it from another angle. But I was, I was a little at, adrift, um, but I was feeling really proud of myself for a while that, that with the debut revision process, I had developed this good habit of writing every day, thinking about my story every day. And I thought, okay, okay, I can keep this pace and this productivity going. Um, I was having fun writing so much, but I was wrong. I, I, I did try out a new story. I sketched out a plot. I wrote some chapters. But then I realized, you know, a couple of months maybe went by and I thought, oh, this is, this is weak. This premise isn't going to support a full book. Um, then I had a different idea and I thought it was pretty great. And I got a much more detailed plan laid out. And I wrote a lot. I wrote maybe 15 chapters. I mean, 10 to 15. But then my agent said, eh, you know, like she just wasn't real excited. She thought maybe it might be YA instead of middle grade. My second book probably should stay in middle grade. Uh, so I just, I mean, I could have gone on with that book, but my gut was telling me, no, this, this shouldn't be your, your second book. So, um, she, you know, my agent was right. And so it was almost three years between these two books. And the whole time I was worried that that book had been some kind of fluke, like Lincoln mentioned, like that imposter syndrome, like this was some unrepeatable miracle <laughs> that had happened that I had been able to write that book and could I do it again? And so that really did feel like a slump to me. And finally, I hit upon a third idea that would become the next book. Um, but it, I just didn't have a lot of confidence after twice sort of striking out and I had to kind of rebuild my habits about writing every day and everything. And uh, the pandemic helped me actually um, to be drafting, which uh, let's talk about that, that struggle of drafting your second book while at the same time you're promoting your first book. Uh, what were the challenges for you both logistically and creatively? Personally, I have a really terrible memory. <laughs> And I feel like I can only hold so much information in my mind at once. And especially when I start drafting a new project, I have to make room for it. And it sort of feels like cleaning out a spare bedroom to turn into a nursery. I mean, I'm assuming I don't have children, but <laughs> I, I feel like I have to kind of clear out the old to usher in the new. Um, but because of how production schedules work and how far in advance you need to turn in a book before it actually hits shelves, you're usually not talking about and promoting the book that you're currently working on. Instead, you're promoting a book that you finished working on maybe one, sometimes even two years ago. And so it can be tough switching gears at the drop of a hat. And for me, from an emotional perspective, it can be really hard for me to summon like the same level of excitement for an old project. Well, old to me, since like I said, I've moved on, but it's tough to summon the same level of excitement for that newly published or soon to be published project as I have for whatever it is that I'm drafting. And so there's a lot of performing, you know, for events, for media, which takes so much energy for me as an introvert. 
And then speaking of bandwidth, you know, doing publicity for your book, whether that's on social media or via virtual events or in-person events, now that we're slowly moving back in that direction, those things can equal a full-time job if you let them. Especially with my debut, I felt this pressure to do all the things and say yes to everything. And I just felt like I needed to strike while the iron was hot. But at the same time, you know, I'm trying to revise my sophomore novel. I'm trying to conceptualize what comes after that. I was drafting my first middle grade. And so when I started to lose steam, I had to make a choice. And for me, I chose writing because it was just too hard popping in and out of a manuscript. It was too hard dealing with all of those distractions, but it's definitely not an easy decision because no matter what you choose to spend your time on each day, you're going to feel guilty about what you're not doing. But that guilt, just like the fear and the doubts that we face as writers, it's just something we all have to figure out how to live with. So for me, from a, from a practical perspective, that looks like, you know, allotting a certain time of day to writing, allotting a certain time of day to doing admin work, catching up on admin work and promo in between revisions. And I'm not always perfect at maintaining those boundaries, but at least I can always find my way back to them when I need to. I find I enjoy the promotion and the conferences and the Zoom school visits. And so I'm having so much fun that I have to remind myself to get back to work, you know, like (laughs) um, start typing, sit down alone and be with the writing. And of course, at the same time, you can't stop the conferences, the promotion, the school visits, you know, you have to juggle and it's partly the time you're juggling, right? And I've had to change when I write, like I write early in the morning now because that's the only time that that doesn't sort of fill up with like the email answering and the scheduling stuff. And so I switched when I write, but partly it's that energy, like you're talking about I have to juggle the the outward flow of doing the public things and being kind of on and and like you said, performative. Um, but then my writing pulls me inward, and I have to get that outward and inward more in balance. Because if I only do the outward, I start to get cranky and I get kind of drained, and I start to um, feel out of touch with myself. Um, and even start to feel like a fraud, like someone else wrote this book or something, <laughs> because I'm not in touch with my deeper self that, that writing brings me in touch with. So I have to balance and replenish somehow. And writing does that, like actually prioritizing the writing puts me back in a place where I'm feeling good again, enough to do the promoting well and to not feel like a fraud when I'm out there doing it. <laughs> um, because without the writing, everything just kind of goes dim for, for everything. So um, I've learned the hard way though, you know, by getting cranky and drained <laughs> that I need to put the writing first. I love your description of the inward and outward because I think that is the challenge so much. And, you know, What If a Fish was my debut middle grade but it wasn't my first book. And so my first book came out in 2019. And so I did lots of in-person events. I mean, you know, that's the norm. (laughs) That was the norm then. And it provides a different kind of um, energy than doing everything virtually. And so I I found myself drained by all the virtual promotion. And I ended up feeling like bad about myself 
when I was on panels with like really successful authors and, you know, no one ever heard of my book. And so it made, it, it kind of gave me that imposter syndrome that promoting did. Whereas when I was promoting a book in person and there was conferences and there was readings and you get that like sense from the audience um, and you get to sign books and people tell you that they love it or, you know, they, they one-on-one might tell you like how your story touched them. And when you're doing these video recordings or virtual panels, you don't get that that same interaction with the reader that you get in person. And so you know, I would find myself comparing the two experiences a lot, even though you know I didn't have any control over <laughs> the pandemic and having everything move virtually. Um, but it was definitely a challenge for me. And so I, I tried not to say, I didn't say yes to everything, partly because I'm definitely not, um, I'm not great on video. <laughs> I'm an in-person, person and I can do a podcast but like video just is not a great medium for me um and so I just really had to pick and choose about what I was doing uh in terms of promoting because I also didn't have a great confidence that each of the things that I was doing was going to have a huge um, return on investment in terms of my emotional state and my time um but I love but that idea Rebecca of that that inward and outward like you do need to be able to turn back inward to write again and so you know, that balance between the business of writing and the actual writing, the creativity of the writing is so challenging. Speaking of the business, did your debut novel have an option clause? You know, how did the contract of your debut set up your next book? Like, did you write a whole book before they would buy it? Or how did how did that work? Do we want to maybe define an option clause for people? I think that was a good suggestion that earlier. Was. Basically, it's, it's a clause in your contract that says that the publisher to whom you're selling a book has the option to see another project from you first. Um, and usually your agent will fight to be really specific about what that project will be. So for example, if you sold a young adult contemporary romance, the agent is probably going to try to have the option be just for another young adult contemporary romance. Um, and sometimes they win that battle and sometimes they lose. So if that clause is in your contract, it just means that the next book that's similar, you know, in the same age category, same genre, you have to show that project to the publisher and give them the option to make an offer first. It doesn't mean that you have to sell it to them if you're not happy with the terms of that offer, but you just have to give them a first look. And there's also usually a time limit on that so that they can't just sort of sit on that project, you know, for years and years, um, there's a window of time in which they have to give you a response. And then, like I said, if they reject it, or if they give you an offer that you're not happy with, at that point, you are free to take it elsewhere. So my first book sold in a two book deal. So I knew Little Brown would be getting another YA contemporary novel from me and it was already slated to follow the same production schedule as my debut which is why like I mentioned before I was on a time crunch but I still had to get their approval of the concept so I sent them a synopsis and partial manuscript for a novel in verse I was working on they said no to that and then I sent them a synopsis and partial manuscript for Heartbreak Symphony which thankfully got approved but if they hadn't thought Heartbreak Symphony was a good fit either, they could have said no to that one too. And then I would have had to go back to the drawing board. Luckily though, 
they did end up taking that novel in verse eventually. I finished that manuscript and sent it back to them to fulfill the option clause for that first two book contract and they acquired it. And so my new one book contract for the novel in verse has an option clause as well, which means they'll have a first look at the next YA contemporary that I write. I also had an option clause um, in both of my books, actually, the both standalones and um, contemporary middle grade option clause. And so I already knew that I wanted to do what, what if, or meet me halfway for my, for my second one. And because I really knew my editor really well, I just knew she would like it. In fact, I was writing in some things that I specifically knew um, that she would like. <laughs> um, and I could, because I really wanted to work with her again. And, and so I was, I was feeling pretty confident that they would just take that. Um, and I um, sold that on a synopsis and um, first few chapters. And so it was really fun to be able to develop that book with my, with my editor. Um, and because she really understood what I was doing with it. It was such a different experience from the first time where I had, you know, a really complete novel that I had been in pitch wars and I had, my agent had edited it. And then so when it finally came to my editor, it was a different editing process than it was with the second book where we knew each other already. And she really got the concept that I was working towards and was able to really give me such great, especially plot kind of the plot forward tension driven stuff. She was so great at helping me figure that all out. So it was really fun. I do have an option clause with um, Meet Me Halfway. And so we will see. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Rebecca? I, I too had, um, you know, this first right of refusal type of thing in the contract. So um, I hoped that they would want my next middle grade contemporary. And um, I will, I, you know, they, they could have turned it down, but I too had that sense of security that the editor I was working with was great. And she's such a positive cheerleader type person. She was really very excited about this next book. Um, now the, the two kind of dead end book ideas, I had kept that between me and my agent. So she never saw those but um but when I came with a proposal and some chapters I think maybe 10 chapters um that my agent was happy with and I was happy with then yeah my editor was very excited and I really wanted to stay with Chronicle I guess if they had offered us something just just terrible like if they had not um increased my advance my agent probably would have said mm, I think we could do better on the open market but, um, but Chronicle wanted to, to keep me too. So it was a fairly nice situation. My debut had received awards and it was on track to earn out, of course, earn out a fairly modest advance, but still they, they could see the, some numbers by then. You know, one advantage to the fact that it took me so long to come up with a viable second book is that we had some sales numbers to, um, kind of wave in front of them and say, see, you need to pay more for the second book. <laughs> and they did. Um, and I'm glad I didn't have to write the whole book. It felt so, I work well on a deadline and it, it was very motivating to have money in hand, to have a deadline and to know um, that I needed to get the draft by a certain point. I had about five months or so 
to turn in the first draft. And I had written a really detailed synopsis. So I found it pretty, it just so happened that this book kind of behaved itself and went <laughs> along with what I had proposed. And lockdown came along right when I was writing in that five months included uh, the first COVID lockdown. And I had suddenly more time to really make sure I made that deadline. And I got some extra time from the lockdown. So it worked, it worked beautifully. And then I thought I could stay that productive through the whole lockdown, but that didn't really happen. But, <laughs> but I did get, I did meet my deadline and I felt good about it. And um, I wanted to work with that editor again. And I have the same thing for the next book that they, they would like a, a look at that. I, I'm at the point now where I have a good idea, but I haven't written the 10 chapters yet that I probably need to give them. So I'm excited. I need a little more of that, but in chair time right, right now. So what's happened now um, with submission besides the auction clocks? Like have any of you or either of you submitted widely since your debut, like some other project? And how is that different from the first time you went out on submission? Up until recently, Little Brown had acquired most of what I'd pitched them. So in addition to Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet and Heartbreak Symphony, they also bought two books in a new middle grade series, two picture books, and then the novel in verse that I mentioned that will be my junior novel. But recently we parted ways on a picture book that was just very different from what I'd sold them previously. And so I was able to take that out widely. And it was the first time I'd gone out on submission since June of 2019. So it was really exciting. And I was able to chat with so many incredible editors and it was similar to subbing my debut in that there were multiple editors interested and it all happened relatively quickly, both somewhere in this new picture book were only on sub for a few weeks. But it was also different because I was coming off the put a bell play honor for somewhere between bitter and sweet and so, so many more industry people sort of knew who I was. I also think that made the situation a little bit more competitive. And so it was really fun and exciting. And we did end up selling the book, although I'll wait to share, you know, more details once the announcement is out, but I'm just really looking forward to working with the new house and sort of seeing how they operate. I also think for me financially, it was really important to start building a list somewhere else. So even though I'm so grateful that Little Brown has invested so much in me, I'm also glad that I have this new opportunity to branch out. Congratulations, Lakin. I have the Thank opposite you. experience. <laughs> <laughs> I went out on sub on, a, on, a, on an odd little project. It's a picture book biography of a completely unknown um, historical figure uh, from the Renaissance. And it's like a project from my heart. And it was really important to my dad. And so, you know, I don't know about those those kind of heart projects can be rough because you believe in them really strongly and it can be really hard to convince the world to believe in them. Luckily, my agent really believed in this project and we actually went through, um, so she was feeling really good when we went on sub and, um, and we went through a few rounds of non-contractual edits at a house I was really excited to work with and an editor I was really excited to work with. And the, um, the house finally said no, even though the editor 
wanted it. So it was one of those like sad stories. Mm. So we've had to shelve that one. Um, I hope that someday I'll be able to bring it back. It's not like um, it's timely or anything. So the biography of a Renaissance writer, woman writer, um, could come out at any time, really. It doesn't really have any shelf life. So maybe that will come, but also um, picture book is definitely something outside of my wheelhouse. Uh, so, so that's, you know, that's, so that's the only project I've, I've done IP work since then. So that's a different experience too. Cool. Can you explain what IP means? So that is um, where a publisher will have an idea and ask you to write the book based on what they already want. And so that's usually um, just like a lump sum. They just give you, you know, they pay you to write it. It doesn't involve credit and royalties and all that different things. Right. Um, but it's, it's a fun way to like get into a different, you know, have different people see your work and have a diff completely different writing experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, for me, my only, um, I mean, as I start my third novel, it's probably going to stay with Chronicle. Like we will probably, my agent has said uh, Chronicle Books is, you know, done well by me and I feel the same. And again, I still love my editor. So even a new project would probably stay with them as long as they want it. But I have been working on, um, an anthology. So I'm co-editing a short story anthology with Ismay Williams. And we have had a lot of fun with this project. Um, we had to, it was really different than writing a novel because we had to write a detailed proposal, like really a very marketing heavy and like almost like writing a big essay about the whole topic. Um, and the anthology is by all mixed or biracial authors with characters that are own voices, right? And it's, a, it's really fun and I think a timely topic. And so it did generate quite a bit of interest, but it was a very different writing experience because really I was doing more editing. But as far as the, the selling of the book, we, we did the detailed proposal. We had to approach a lot of potential contributors because really, the, the sale of the book depends on who is committing to contribute. Um, and both our agents had to work together. So the legal stuff had to be sort of double, <laughs> everything had to go through multiple people and multiple agencies and all this. Um, but finally, um, it did go to auction. So within a few weeks, the several, like five offers had come in. And so it went to auction. Not everyone, you know, made an offer. Of course, there were some, some passes, um, some no thank yous, but it was very different to suddenly be kind of interviewing them, you know, and selecting from among them instead of the other way around, because my novels had not had that experience. Um, so that was so so like the flip of the script was really interesting. And we interviewed each one. And uh, finally, we did go with Inkyard Press. And it comes out January 2023. Um, and the most surreal thing was how quickly it went compared to like months of being on submission with my debut novel. And I was like, oh, OK, so this is different. <laughs> and it's been a good experience to work with a new house and different editor. Um, 
that's probably good for me as a writer since I've been kind of just with Chronicle, Chronicle, Chronicle with my novels. So it's been good. Um, well, let's explore one other aspect of the sophomore slump. Um, how did you manage to stay like mentally grounded or serene, um, like quelling some of that urge to compare your first book and your second book? Or, uh, you know, did you have to ignore the feeling like everyone else is writing faster than I am or stuff like that? So I already write pretty fast. <laughs> I'm not trying to like toot my own horn, but self-publishing for so many years has trained me to be really prolific. And so that wasn't really a major concern. I am more worried that publishers are going to be like, you're writing too much. We can't buy all of these books. <laughs> but comparing book one with book two has been tough, especially as trade reviews have started coming in for Heartbreak Symphony and they haven't been as stellar as the reviews for somewhere. And it stings, especially thinking back on how difficult the writing process was and how it's sort of a miracle that I was able to produce anything at the time at all. But I mean, trade reviewers don't care about that, right? Readers don't care how hard a book was to write. They just care that it's good or that it's what they expect, which, you know, is the other worry because you know, what if I've written something a little too strange or the magical realism ends up turning people off or they won't get it. And so that self-doubt is there, that fear is there. But one of the benefits of breaking into these new age categories with my debut middle grade novel coming out in September, my debut picture book coming out in February, is that I have so many things to look forward to and so many opportunities to connect with readers and build an audience so I don't feel like all of my success hinges on this one novel. I would love to know the answers to keeping mentally grounded. Um, <laughs> I have found, I've found it and not specifically about which book it's on, sort of just in general. I feel like when for so many years, my goal in life was to publish a book. And so now that I'm publishing my fourth book, I feel like, well, now what happens to my goals in life and to what you know it's sort of a bigger picture of not just writing but like how do I reframe my um, personal goals and how do I want to spend my time I'm in my late 40s um, what am I looking forward to what do I want to do besides writing um, and, so, and so it's almost like not just thinking about what the next book brings but also just what the next chapter in life brings after having that one goal for so many years um, and a goal that so for so long felt like unachievable like it was never going to happen I was never going to publish a book <laughs> um and so after spending all that time with a lot of angst so it's just kind of rethinking about how how things work um I'm actually draft I'm actually working on an adult novel right now which is super fun and um kind of taking up all my mental um, and it feels really good to just be trying something different and it kind of lets me let go a little bit about the comparing and wondering how things will go just to be kind of a new writer again almost. Um, so that's been nice, but the amount of sort of angstiness and comparing everything is still just kind of a, a regular challenge. It really is. I wonder if it ever ends. I think, um, you know, very widely multi-published authors still 
say that they have this. I, I definitely had all of these feelings. Um, I had to, well, especially when I was having the dead end ideas and, uh, and even once I started on the book that would become this sophomore novel, I had to like, give myself a talk every day, like consciously say, it's going to be okay <laughs> because immediately I would start thinking this book isn't as artistic as my first book um this book is going to disappoint my readers my you know fans or statistically you know this book is not likely to win an award and then I'll feel like a failure because I've like stepped down from what my debut happened to you know get a lot of love and and it, I'm just going to feel like it's a failure, even if it's fine. Like if this book is totally fine, it may not quite get as high. Like Lakeham was saying, the reviews are starting to come in now. And, you know, Booklist gave a lovely review, very positive. But on my first book, it, they gave a star. So, ah, <laughs> so I'm still dealing with it. But, um, but I try to give myself those self-talks to say, um, you're not, it's, it's, each book is its own project. You're, if you're putting your whole self into it and making it the best you can, that's all you can do. And all those kinds of things. Um, I, and I also had to fight the feeling with books one and two that I was somehow behind because I had seen seemingly every other author I knew <laughs> was coming out with book three before my second book was even written. You know, and so I had to really keep my eyes on my own paper, as they say, you know, don't compare to other people. I'm not a full-time writer, you know, not that all of them are, but, um, you know, just try to focus on the joy of the characters and my story. Uh, and that helped quiet down those other thoughts in my head. Um, but sometimes I really just was down and, and I had to like find ways to reconnect with my creativity away from writing so like oh I think I'll make a YouTube video today or I'll go into poetry and write some poem or something just to remind myself that I am creative even if this book is giving me trouble right now or this this one turned out to be a dead end for now or whatever um, but I didn't always win the fight to feel better you know so I, sometimes I just still felt bad but I made it through and the second book is now you know I'm really happy with it regardless of what reviewers say and everything I'm very happy with it in myself and that's that has to that has to be enough really psychologically um, and there is a bigger picture thing about that switch from writer to author and how writing is now work and it wasn't before I mean it was I was hoping it would be um but I didn't have like a freelance like like and had a background of forcing myself to to treat this more like a job and be in this the mental space of producing and um I guess Anika you mentioned that too this idea that I have to be producing <laughs> and how do I manage that pressure um so yeah, that bigger picture of work versus play in the writing, I, I need to somehow connect to the joy, even though it's work. So that's, that's my current project <laughs> to, to do that.
um, especially well, as one I, thing that yeah one thing that I found is I think you teach right Rebecca I do yeah I because I teach to I teach in an MFA program and then I've done the um Hermanas mentoring and working with um emerging writers is also something that is so helpful to kind of refilling your bucket and to just see people's you know see these writers growth and see I mean it doesn't hurt when they say like oh I couldn't have done this without you you know <laughs> um and to just kind of see the bigger picture of helping people come up um I work with a lot of BIPOC writers and seeing their stories and seeing them see themselves in books that I assign them is also just really gratifying and um and so it allows me to see, like, it's not just the writing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's my the community, right, as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This, uh, Las Mosas has been great that way, too. And I have mentored one person just in this last round. And you're right. It is, it's a great way to feel connected to creativity and also to feel that you're paying it forward and, and like, touching the future, even. Well, any last thoughts? Um, the sophomore slump is real, I guess. <laughs> it's real, but everyone goes through it. Yeah. And so you will make it out on the other side eventually. And I know that we're so lucky. You're very, very lucky to experience the sophomore slump because yes. it means that you have a second book coming out. And that right. means you had a first book come out. And so I think that's really important to remember too. And to just really be grateful <laughs> that, that you're in this situation to begin with. Yes, gratitude is a great way to to remind yourself that this is this is actually a really nice problem to have. <laughs> okay, well, if you'd like to learn more about Las Musas or our books, please visit our website at lasmusasbooks.com or find us on social media at Las Musas Books. And be sure to check out our bookshop page where each purchase of one of our books goes towards supporting independent bookstores. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also sign up for the Les Musas newsletter, which is really excellent, y'all, um, to have podcast updates as well as other Musa news, such as release dates, teasers, spotlights, and more delivered straight to your inbox. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.